If you enjoy listening to Clinical Conversations, why not become a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh? Our membership provides you with access to the RCPE educational portal, the live evening medical updates, and you have options to view the symposia both in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, please go to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Clinical Conversations. My name is Dr Jonathan Bodgett and I am a TMC member and tonight I am delighted to be speaking with Dr Johnny Guckian again, our TMC co-chair. Welcome Johnny. Hello, thanks for having me again. Well Johnny, we're talking about something that's actually really important to all of our trainees and it's something that we've not really touched on in the Clinical Conversations podcast thus far. We're talking about the recruitment process. Why are we talking about this? Uh, Because it's a never-ending story, isn't it? It's a real challenge. It's something that we all go through in some way, shape or form. And there's a lot of boxes to tick, a lot of mountains to climb, but there is a way you can strategize it. And I think there's a way that as an applicant, recruitment can be done all right. And there are certainly ways as recruiters or as educationalists, we can do recruitment better. So very important. I think it's important to say from the start that we will be releasing a whole series of podcasts on recruitment. And this is really just a flavor of what we need to to really touch on now, because recruitment season comes around very quickly. As we all know, you really need to start planning for the recruitment phase, probably around about, what do you think, September, October, November? When do you even start thinking about recruitment, Johnny? I'm going to be very honest with you. People start thinking about, you know, if you're considering IMT or ST3 recruitment, people start thinking about it in about third year of medical school. <laughs> That's the way it's going at the moment. But in terms of getting everything together, portfolio, etc., I was a dermatology applicant. So, and I was applying for ST3. It was around applications went in towards the end of November, start of December time. So I got everything ready in September, August in terms of documentation, but I'd been planning derm application for years beforehand. So maybe this is a good opportunity just to talk about how you started preparing for all of this, Johnny. Mm. I can talk a little bit about how I've experienced recruitment, but what did you reflect on and how did you organise yourself when you were planning your career in dermatology? So careers is, I think, a combination of good luck and hard work and crucially within good luck is the mentors that you're exposed to. And I've been lucky enough to have a few good mentors throughout my career. But equally, I didn't encounter the one big helpful area to understand in recruitment until I was an F4. So I did an F4 in dermatology. And that was the thing I encountered then was the website for JRCPTB, which had the shortlisting point section breakdown. I know we'll talk about that at length later on, but I thought that was a good start for me in terms of mapping out my medical CV as it is, because whilst the points can be transient and they might change over time and get updated, etc., I think it's a good way for strategizing your wider career sort of trajectory and the boxes that you need to generally take to impress an interview panel, regardless of whatever specialty you apply for, because they're fairly consistent across the board, across different specialties and across different career stages. It's interesting that you talk about how some people and their careers when they're in their third year of medical school. And I remember really well, actually, when I was at University of Aberdeen, we have fortune of having what we call a regent. I don't know if this happened where you went to university, Johnny. It's like an overall supervisor for your medical school career. So your five or six years, however long it is. And 
The first moment I met this supervisor, they asked me, what do you want to do? And what are you going to do now to make sure you get what you want? And I, as a 18 year old, had really little concept of what I wanted to do. And what I wanted to do has changed many times since then. What are your feelings on that? And is that something that we need to consider when we go into the first day of medical school? I have very strong opinions on this. I would say, first of all, I got lucky in that I did a placement, probably the only optional extra placement that I went to at medical school. I was in third year doing a dermatology clinic in North Tyneside. And I'll never forget the clinic. It was just really enjoyable. And they let me loose because how much harm can a medical student really do in, in dermatology clinic? And I loved it. And my consultant said to me, I'm going to have you decide you want to do dermatology by the end of the clinic. And he was right. He was right. And I knew from then I wanted to do it. And I was lucky in that it's been consistently that way all the way through, mostly because I didn't want to do anything else. And I ruled out a lot of other things as well. But my strong feeling on this is that aside from the few, and it is actually just a few who decide very early on that on my days, this is the specialty for me. I am destined to do this. It is totally normal to not know what you want to do. Okay. And it should be totally normal to not be expected to start CV building and playing the equipment game until you have qualified as a doctor. Okay. I think that it is at least you should be able to wait until you are fourth year or final year, depending on your finals line medical school. I think if you are first year or second year at medical school, then it's too early to know where you want to be. Okay, if you've had some experience in other careers, maybe within medicine, you know, maybe if you've had a background in nursing or if you had a background as a healthcare assistant in certain areas, fine, you might have specific ideas, but until you get a breadth of experience across the medical school curriculum, you cannot understand or appreciate the cultures which may influence you into deciding different career choices. People change their mind all the time. It's fine. And I think the idea that we should decide in first and second year is absurd and puts too much pressure on people. We'll talk a little while about why some people are starting to think that they are pressured into playing this game so early. But the general rule is if a first year, second year, or kind of even a start of third year medical student comes to me and says, I want a research paper on this and they do a lot I tell them to go to the pub. So it's quite interesting because obviously we within the UK have a slightly different scheme compared to maybe other countries where medical students may enter their course as an undergraduate having not done any other previous qualifications. I guess we'll talk about this a bit later but it certainly influences your perspective on your education depending on what stage you enter medical school. And I guess you said that the recruitment process is a game. Is it a game? I think it is very vulnerable to be gamed and people successfully game it all the time. And I think that's to be expected. Recruitment is like that across the board in all professions. You know, we put our job descriptions and advisable criteria that we want for people's jobs. And so there are many different professions where you're able to kind of manipulate your CV in a certain way so that you can look attractive. And lots of people build up their portfolio of experience across different professions. So I don't think it's unique to medicine, but in medicine, we are competitive people as a culture. There is a culture of competition and we like to feel important. There are lots of committees within medicine. I have lost kind of the number of socks or medical societies that have cropped up even since I left medical school, which wasn't all that long ago. There is a space sock at my university that I went to now, which I didn't know there was enough people to be interested in space medicine, but fair play to them. Is this so, actually on the... Dear yes, it is. It's on it's a group two specialty um, alongside dermatology, I may add. <laughs> Slightly fewer numbers though. <laughs> and yeah, so I think that it's something that we like to have hopes to jump through, I think, and that suits the recruitment culture as well. 
I think the essence of it is that there are lots of things that you can do to improve your competitiveness, but it may seem that actually not everybody has the same awareness of what you can do or the same opportunities to do so. Yes. What are your thoughts on that? So I think that the fact that it can be game, it is a fact. Whether it should be is a different question and whether it's good and whether the direction we're going in is good is another question. Now, I would say that opinions that I have from here on in are my own and not that of the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh or any of the institutions I represent. However, I worry that competition is so high now, largely because not enough training numbers for a variety of reasons we can talk about. And because of that, competition has bled back all the way into medical school. So the medical students, they're seeing those ahead of them fighting for more and more points. More and more people are finding out about how to play the system and how to get points. And there's also an industry around recruitment, around medical education. I deem this phenomenon as the industrialization of medical education with your different courses that you can go on, the fact you can pay for publications in certain ways. There are various points that you can essentially pay for and industry has taken advantage of that. And because there is peer pressure that lots of people think that they should be doing these things, that is fed back to medical students. And these opportunities are on the face of it good, but that just means that everyone's standard is increasing. The system can't adjust for that. And so the points threshold just goes up and up and up and it's not sustainable. It's not good for well-being. And then we have the problem with opportunity because not everyone as you say has the same opportunity you're more likely to be able to do these things if you can afford it and we have a massive cost of living crisis we have a living nhs bursary problem and we have lots of disparities across socioeconomic class and across ethnicity as well you know there's all kinds of differential attainment and racism across recruitment as well so heavily complex and a lot to unpick which i'm sure we can talk about so i think it'd be useful to just sort of reflect on my experience now. I think certainly throughout my time in training from what was then core medical training after foundation year training. So I did acute common care STEM acute medicine. So you still have to do the CMT year or you had to, and then go into specialty training program. For me, it's acute medicine. And when I was planning my path, so to speak, I didn't really know about what the recruitment system had in store for me. I knew that if I had a publication, then that would maybe do me good stead. And so as an FYI doctor, I made friends with people who could help me with that. As a new doctor, that's always a good thing to do. And I knew that I had an interest in teaching. So I tried to explore that and became an ILS instructor. Little known to me, these are kind of things that might do me good stead in the future. I wasn't to know. And when it came to the ACCS interview, the application system was through Oriel. And we all know the Oriel website. When you apply for your specialty program, you have to put in your details, your previous employment, your history of qualifications. And by and large, the scoring that it processes for you are based on your previous qualifications, your exam results, whether you've done MRCP, your training, your teaching experience, that kind of thing. And then you get invited to an interview if you meet a certain threshold or a score. And then your interview is usually done like an OSCE, so three stations, or depending on the format, it's their way of basically giving you a clinical scenario or communication scenario and a CV scenario. What was it like with dermatology in terms of planning for that group two specialty, Johnny? 
it was pretty much identical. So you apply shortlisting points and it hasn't actually changed with the new curricula. So I was CMT into dermatology. You can also access dermatology via PEDS and ACCS, actually, interesting. I know one person who's done that and that is a career change. <laughs> um, and then also from surgery now, which is a new thing. So I went through the most common route, CMT, and went through the same point scoring system Went through to interview at the Etihad Stadium in my year. So I felt a bit unwell there, being a Man United fan. And then, then interview was three stations. And some of the group two specialties have a process like this where we had the first station was research, even though it wasn't an ACF or anything, because dermatology is quite research heavy and academic. I had five minutes outside with a laminated abstract of a paper which didn't have the conclusions of the paper on it and you had to basically go in and present this abstract you read in five minutes and bear in mind most of that five minutes you spend thinking oh god 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 well that's what i did and then you have to compose yourself when you go in so the first station was academia or research and governance i had a clinical station with some ethical discussion i had to present and discuss a picture in dermatology and the picture was itch which obviously has no clinical findings so that was fun and then there's a portfolio station I think that the main take home that I find from my experience was that you can work your butt off for years for points, but actually your points get divided by, three, or at least one at my, my time, divided by four before you go into the interview and don't really matter for a lot. Obviously, if you've got a better portfolio, you're going to do better in the portfolio station because you have more to talk about. But even then, it's all about how you sell yourself and then about how you can answer the clinical questions and how you can, you know, get through a research station. And a lot of people do really well in interviews and they've not got a massive CV and some people go in who massive CV and they flunk the interview. It's just, it's a case of how you do on the day. And that's the gamble with interviews. I always thought that if you presented yourself in a sensible way and showed that you were safe and caring, then ultimately interviewers would see that. And if you could make safe clinical decisions in your scenarios and show your ability to think logically, that would do you in good stead. And I'm sure we all go through a period of imposter syndrome, but going into my CMT application, I felt that perhaps I didn't have as much on the CV compared to people that I knew in my medical school. And I guess we could just sort of talk about those things because when you look at the application, when you actually get access to the Oriel login and you put in your data, unless you've seen this before and you're putting it in for the first time when the recruitment round starts, it can be quite daunting. Oh, absolutely. And that's why I would recommend anyone who's listening to this, go to the GRCPTB points, shortlisting point scoring section for IMT or ST4 or ST3. And you can see the layout there. We've mentioned it already in the breakdowns, but there's also points for leadership, the variable points for MRCP exams. Now you get points for prizes, publications, presentations, etc. But yeah, if you've not seen that then. Yeah, crumbs, that can be a shock whenever you apply. But I would say that kind of stuff isn't necessarily all that worth stressing about IMT. I think IMT interview is more heavily weighted towards your clinical capabilities, your clinical experience, your ability to handle the ethical and governance scenario rather than bossing your portfolio. Because in an ST3 scenario, you you know, I could have chucked in bits about my research in my research and governance station. There's nothing like that at IMT. It's all fairly standardized. They want you, as you say, to be safe and sound. And the general tip is just be nice. I think just just be a generally decent person and Try not to be too weird. <laughs> um, don't stand out too much <laughs> in terms of your personality, I guess. And you generally would be fine. So if you get to that point, you're putting in your points and you're thinking, well, I've not got much here. I wouldn't stress too much. The thing that struck me was that when they ask you for your list of additional qualifications and they give you a drop down of different things to choose from and you can choose PhD, 
or MDE or master's or postgraduate diploma. And I think for the majority of people coming into IMT, most people probably wouldn't have those things. And you get maximum number of points, I think, if you have a PhD. And I guess that maybe changes your perception on how you might fare in the scoring if you don't have a PhD. What are your thoughts on postgraduate qualification or undergraduate qualifications, such as doing a BSc during your medical school years? Yeah. So I'd say, first of all, that I didn't interpolate, didn't have any previous degree, didn't have anything else previous degree-wise, didn't get any points in those first two sections. So don't worry if you don't got them. It's fine. I got into one of the most competitive programs within medicine and I didn't have those. So it's fine. When you're applying, you can't turn back time and get undergraduate qualifications. So, you know, I wouldn't stress that. Those things exist. I think just to make sure that, you know, there are people who will, the odd person who has it, there's not going to be many people who have a PhD. The vast majority of people who have these qualifications will be doing academic training and it's a different pathway different system different interviews you're likely not to be competing against them so again i wouldn't fret too much about them the interesting thing though to mention whilst we talk about undergraduate qualifications is that with an st3 going forward i think possibly with amt as well we need to double check this is hot off the press their intercalated degrees are being taken off the point system which is a new thing and is following the same decision that was made for the foundation program application. So your intercalated degree, points-wise at least, directly is not worth as much to the recruitment cycle as it used to be, which is controversial. Yeah, I can see some reasoning behind it in terms of cost of training and opportunity costs and ensuring equality and not having people apply for intercalated degrees and spending money on them for the points. However, there are, again, not with my RCPE hat on, there are ways to deliver that and potentially stagger that for people who've already done it before that rule change came into play. But I would say that there are still things you can learn from and gain from an intercalated degree that you can use in the recruitment system. It's interesting hearing you just talking about what counts in your undergraduate and or your pre-IMT years. A friend of mine actually recently did an application for IMT and had already done PACES. But the the PACES exam didn't give you any different number of points to having part two. And this is for IMT, but obviously the PACES is an ST3 requirement for progression. And we can maybe touch on that a bit. But I guess it's just interesting to try to understand about how these different domains are scored and, and what kind of evidence goes into these different assessments. And perhaps I might ask you just to support your understanding or how this process is carried out. So I've not been in the room in the decisions, the rationale behind these, you get hearsay and you can try to understand some of these things. I would suggest that the evidence behind any of it is significantly lacking. And I can talk a bit about why I think the evidence is not only lacking in terms of points, but is actually potentially educationally harmful from a purely theoretical perspective. I think actually a lot of it is more political or not even political, it's more in the interest of the programme. So for example, my understanding is that they don't really want you to have done PACES before you do a IMT programme, because the idea is that doing the IMT programme is supposed to set you up to be able to do PACES. And PACES is supposed to be an exam that in theory proves that you are capable of moving on to be an ST3, ST4. And to have that too early, I think it's being considered the system isn't working as it should. Now, there's lots of ways you can talk about that. And I think there are some echoes with that to what happens in surgery and in some other specialties where you're not supposed to be able to do too many months within a specialty before you apply for it. So, for example, if you do over, I think, a year or a year and a half in a specialty, you can't actually apply for that specialty, which sounds bananas to me within surgery. But I think some of that's changing. And the idea of that is not to encourage people to just look them for years and then apply to be a reg afterwards. There are a lot of political decisions that have been made in rooms by a lot of people who don't necessarily have the 
evidence in mind and more have their own particular rationales in mind for good or for not so good. I guess maybe what might have been an issue, or I think definitely is an issue in this COVID area, is that the recruitment system has changed, obviously because of COVID, the way in which recruitment has been carried out through teams or how the assessments in the application window have changed in the transition between CMT and IMT may have left a certain year or generation of CMTs looking for IMT numbers or trying to get an ST3 or 4 number having done their CMT and then maybe doing clinical fellow years or clinical development fellow years and then not getting into a job or a training number that they want. And perhaps that's something that may then influence how someone wants to train or where they want to train. I mean, there's been so much disruption because of COVID, but then also because of the new curriculum. I was the last year of CMT and there was a lot of disruption even to our jobs locally in terms of what we were able to, you know, being able to do the jobs that we'd applied for and accepted because of the transition from CMT to IMT. And I have, on a system level, I have sympathy for the programmes trying to implement these changes and then deal with COVID. And I have possibly even more sympathy for those people who are subject to the disruption and the stress because it's not their fault. The problem is, is that IMT was changed for a reason and there's no good time to do that other than outside of a pandemic. <laughs> but they didn't know the pandemic was coming, to be fair. So yeah, I think it's those changes have been very challenging. I would say that I think that we should accept and embrace the fact that people come into IMT, ST3, ST4, alongside various different paths. And we should embrace kind of that I say diversity, in inverted commas, of career path, because it can only bring a more rounded clinician. So I think there should be as much laxity as possible and acceptance of different pathways when we recruit, because that can be quite powerful. So I agree. I think one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast, Johnny, is to help our listeners understand what they can do to make them more competitive, I guess. And we've kind of touched on this, but the other domains that the location covers are teaching experience. One of those things is the evidence. It's all about evidence of you organizing and designing a teaching program, be it locally or nationally. Do you have any advice on how to do this? Yep, I think there should be no reason why you can't get full points in this area. I think it's one of the most relatively straightforward ways to do it. And it's also in a really enjoyable way. I'm a teaching buff, and I think you can really get a lot of benefit as a communicator by getting involved in education. As an F1, as an F2, etc., it can be still quite hard if you've got a busy job. However, being able to help out with teaching is a good way to get yourself off the board and go into your own space, go and learn a bit more and meet some new people, do some peer-to-peer teaching. I did my initial program when I was an F1, and I literally just went to the teaching fellows who were in my hospital and said, guys, I want to do some teaching. You got any students? And they said, yeah, here's some students. And I asked the students, what do you want to learn about? And met them maybe once a month for six months or something like that. So then I done a local one. And then the next tip I would give to people is consider being a clinical teaching fellow. So I was a CTF as my F3 and my F4 year. Loved it. The CTF jobs will generally pay for you to do a certificate or a diploma in medical education, which is another kind of point scorer in terms of accreditation of teaching, which in itself is a great experience. And again, I'm a teaching kind of scholarship nerd. So that's really changed my career doing that. And you have loads of opportunities to get to know students coming through, help them through finals. There's honestly, there's very little that's as rewarding as helping people through their exams and then like turn to you afterwards and say, thank you so much for helping me become a doctor. That's so fulfilling an experience. So consider being a teaching fellow. 
Join these teams and Zoom. There's loads of different ways you can run teaching programs and get involved in teaching program. Go on social media and there's all kinds of like national schemes which have already been arranged that you can become a part of that are actually set up to help you get the feedback for these points. I wouldn't want to plug in any kind of off the top of my head, but they're generally, if you look locally, there are some people who will be involved in this. So you get a feel through your F1, F2 or other foundation years for who's interested in teaching. Stick to them and ask them how they can help. So I'd like to ask about how we can improve the leadership and management opportunities for our listeners. That's one of the domains on the application, certainly. I think it's one of the things that we really need to focus on. Obviously, being a part of the TMC is a great opportunity, and I might just flag that up, but there are other ways that you can do that within your societies or your interests. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think this is one of the areas that has massively increased recently. And it's when we talk about competition, this is where medics get competitive because medics love a title. You love to be on a committee and things like that. So, and it's become so popular. Now, I would advise the main and most important part of that section is you've had a leadership role for X amount of time and you have delivered sustainable change or a measurable change. Okay, I think that's the wording. So you have to be able to have brought change, a meaningful change to your committee. So that means that basically you can't just join six different committees, as some medics tend to do, and say, I've been the Thermosoc person or BMA person or whatever. If you've not done anything, then that's meaningless. It's actually relatively easy now to join a committee. It's about being able to be part of something bigger than yourself and contribute to that. You don't need to have changed the world, you know, maybe joining some kind of regional education group and delivering a annual conference or an annual teaching session. That would be something or contributing to, you know, maybe a strategy or maybe some guideline work for an organization like a clinical organization, for example, or even locally being part of your neurology society or your psychiatry society, etc. at university and helping out organizing speakers for an event. If you can measure it, that's meaningful. Just being on a committee isn't enough. And I would encourage people to be creative with it. It doesn't have to be in the specialty you're interested in. That's the other thing. All of these publications, presentations, teaching, etc. If you want to do dermatology, it doesn't have to be anything to do with dermatology. It'll help in the interview, but for points, it can mean anything. I would suggest that your entire portfolio is on psychiatry and then you're applying for renal. They might ask a few questions about that in your interview, but it's totally valid. People have complete U-turns in their career choices all the time. You just need to be able to justify it. Yeah, so there are areas, things like within education is good to look at. So JASME and TASME are training organizations or medical student organizations for the Association for the Study of Medical Education. Conflict of interest, I'm on their board, so I have to plug them. But the nationwide, national committees you can apply for, who are always looking for people TNMC, always looking for people as well, though we've just passed our main time for recruitment, but next year, and there's, there's plenty of other royal colleges in various different specialties who are always keen for medical students or junior docs. Yeah, I think that's a great effort just for the opportunities that are available out there. One of the other things that obviously you've just touched on there is your ability to show evidence for a presentation or a poster. When I was going through the recruitment for ST3, certainly it was, have you presented a poster at a local conference or an international conference? Or is this a publication that you were the first author on in a peer-published and reviewed journal? That's the kind of level of the descriptor that they're looking for. What are your thoughts on that? So I've referred to difficulty in terms of getting points earlier on, and I do think there is a hierarchy, or at least there are stages of difficulty for getting some of these. It depends on your interest, of course. Now, I think that First of all, if you've not got an undergraduate degree, then as we've said, fine, that's out the window. So put that to one side. I would say education is a low-hanging fruit in terms of your teaching, as we talked about before. Posters are up there as well in terms of being relatively straightforward to get. I think the main reason for that is that conferences want you to come to the conference. They want you to pay to come to the conference. And you are significantly more likely to pay to come to the conference if you've got a poster accepted. 
Therefore, it is relatively easy to get posters accepted for a conference somewhere in the UK, whether it's regional or national. Locally, fine, I would aim higher, okay? Because there are a lot of national conferences. You may have to pay eventually to go to them uh, or get supported to pay to go to them. Who will take your poster if it's half decent? And if you don't ask, you don't get. I once applied for, as a relatively early in my med career, when I was an F3, I applied for it to go to a conference in Stanford in California. And I submitted four things to it. And I thought, if I throw enough shit at the wall, some of it will stick. And all of them got accepted. And I thought, oh my God, now I have to do two presentations and two posters. <laughs> so strategize. And if you don't ask, you don't get. So I would back yourself. Imposter syndrome, as you said earlier, is a real thing. And I think actually people don't apply for these things because they think I'm not good enough. And there's people out there who are much better than me. Back yourself. Because if you don't back yourself, the people who are recruiting you won't back you either. I think it's one of the things that we should just touch on is whenever you are ranking your qualifications or writing your answers, you're essentially rating yourself. And some people may rate themselves differently to what uh, a person that doesn't know you may rate you when they look at your evidence. Do you have any tips on how to rate yourself appropriately? Rate yourself as highly as you can in a way you can justify. Okay, people will be more likely to underrate themselves. But actually, if you've got evidence for something, why wouldn't you be confident? We're used to being modest as medics, I think. Recruitment is not a time for modesty. Back yourself. Don't take a hand. You know, don't be like saying you've done things you haven't done because that's probity problem. But if you're not sure if something qualifies for points, just email the recruitment office and they generally get back to you relatively quickly. I find that even if you don't qualify for points for something, you can still write it down in the sections because it might not come up as a points thing, but they could easily bring it up in an interview. You can still get interview points for that. I had that for, because I didn't have any publications in IMT, but I put in a, I'd written a, basically a blog kind of post for the Faculty of Leadership and Management about social media. And then they brought this up, or they started asking me about WhatsApp in clinical areas. And that was quite a fascinating discussion. So it can drive conversation, whatever you pop in those boxes. And if it's more interesting, it'll stand out and, you know, they might remember you a bit more that way. That's really helpful. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate your experience and your reflections on that. There's so much to talk about, and obviously the recruitment podcast series will touch on all these things. Going forwards, though, I think it's important for trainees to know what to expect in the years to come so that they know how to tailor their time, what to do with their time effectively, and to organize their CV. Are there any changes coming to recruitment in the future? And if so, how and why? So I'm going to give a political answer here because... There are likely to be changes. There have been efforts to make changes which have not come through yet. And what I would say, I'll speaking more generally, is that look at other specialties and the direction of travel. One big change recently for some specialties, particularly in GP, but others, is the MSRA exam. This is a very popular exam which combines some clinical stuff with some SJT stuff. Just so the listeners know, Johnny, sorry to interrupt you. What is the MSRA? So it's an exam that's got some SJT questions in it, and it's got some clinical questions in it, and it was originally designed for GPs. And so GPs have the MSRA exam as, I think, their main initial point of recruitment. And then if if you score highly enough, you don't even need an interview. So that contributes to your overall score. It's a useful shortlisting tool. And because it's a useful shortlisting tool, other specialties have taken it on. I know ophthalmology and I think psychiatry as well have taken it on. Because basically for recruitment bodies, they get all of these applications and they can't interview everyone. So practically, they need to reduce that number. So it's a manageable amount of people to interview because otherwise they have to take consultants off the ward for ages and it will be a whole handling. So it's a good shortlisting system. However, there are currently, if you look at the evidence for MSRA, it's published in the literature, 
There are two papers on the on the MSRA, and both of them are letters written by early career educators. There is no background data. I've not seen any of the data about it. And then more generally about things like SJT, which is obviously popular in foundation and popular across the board, because historically, in theory, it was supposed to be better for widening participation. It was supposed to be more equalizing than clinical exams or written academic exams which have a history of differential attainment. SJTs are supposed to be less bad at that. However, in practice, that's not really coming out as there's a lot of controversy around the foundation program, SJT, and there's not the most popular exam in the world. Again, there's not a lot of real life data for this that's been published. So I think one thing that we as a teen MC will be arguing for is for greater transparency generally around recruitment. And that's something that as co-chair of the teen MC, I would be advocating for. It's much easier said than done. There's lots of data issues in there. I would keep an eye out on the MSRA is what I would advise. That's not me saying I have any in the know knowledge about that, but just keep an eye on that. I would also suggest about points. My point earlier about how points are tied into cost of training is something that matters because there's a movement against increasing the cost of training, understandably. So I would make a prediction. This is not based on conversations I've had with anyone who matters, but my prediction would be that points will no longer exist in 10 years, maybe even five for shortlisting. You heard it here first. There you go. Well, to be fair, if I was in charge, it's the first thing I'll get rid of. I think the only reason we haven't got rid of them yet is because we don't have a suitable way of shortlisting based on evidence and doesn't worsen differential attainment. So it's the lesser of several potential evils at the moment. But I would still say that using that points matrix as a general template for any medical CV is a really good idea because you will still need to come across as someone who's vaguely interested in academia or you know lifelong learning and teaching in leadership. These are already good things to have. If you want a prize, then great. If you'd be at a conference, it's showing your interest in that particular field. So these are all good things. And the final tip I wanted to mention earlier, sorry, that I would give going forward, when you're looking at that matrix, First of all, work smart, not hard. So if there are things you can do that hit lots of areas. So if you do a project, make sure you get the most out of it. So let's say you do a project on medical education. It could be your however many, your six month teaching program or whatever, however long teaching program. Do some sort of innovative online thing with it. And then you could write that up as a, make it a poster, maybe even present it at a conference. Then you could write it up for publication. You could submit it for a prize. You can do all of these things with one project. So you're covering so you all those domains. Yeah, literally, you can, you can be really lean about it. I've got a medical student who's absolutely brilliant who did a, an online dermatology project with me, part of her elective last year. Even just an initial idea of the elective project won her the British Association of Dermatologists elective prize. She then delivered the project on dermatology and skin of colour and has submitted it for the BAD conference, presented it there, won a prize at the BAD conference. So she got two prizes out of it. Now she's writing it up for publication and submitting it. So she'll be smashing through all the points. And so there are really ways to be clever about it. The approach I took to the points system was I wanted to create a brand for myself was memorable in an interview. So my vibe is medical education and social media. Those are my interests. So that's what my publications are in. My publications, by the time of ST3, were in no way particularly fancy. I hadn't done any mad clinical trials or anything. My first publication was about escape rooms in MedEd. So nothing fancy. It was a couple of focus groups. I wrote it in an afternoon. I never thought it would get accepted. So I published some stuff on on medical education, presented some stuff about social media and MedEd. And that kind of went across my various different parts of that, that point matrix. And it came up in the portfolio, a very strong message. He's interested in medical education and social media. We asked questions about that. I could tie in dermatology to both of those areas and it made me memorable. And so I got full points in the portfolio station. I think because of that, not necessarily just because of what I've done, but it's about how I communicated that and how I made that as a structured approach. And that helped me easily guide my answers in the interview. So you're basically showing your commitment to specialty and you're telling the interviewers 
what your unique selling point is. Absolutely. So there are lots. It's not just medical education. You could do that and you could do it in quality improvement. If that's your interest, you could do it in certain areas within technology, like artificial intelligence. You could be involved in that. You could be involved in clinical informatics. There's loads of different ways, interesting niches that are adjacent to specialties that are very, very attractive to journals to publish as well. That's why my escape room paper got published as well. It's probably been a good paper to read, I should add. Finish your own time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was really enjoyable to do, but it was a zombie thing to escape, but um, it was unique. And I think it's like the second most cited escape room paper in MedEd, which is bizarre. So if you think cleverly about what journals want, you can get something published. And I think that reflects back to what I was saying earlier in terms of what is the easiest and hardest to get points for. Publications, I think, are way up there in terms of how hard it is. So if you've not got publications, don't stress, but there are ways to work your way up. I think we've talked about so much. And I guess some of the listeners might be thinking, okay, so I've done a wee bit of that. I can see where I'm getting my points. Or there might be some listeners that are thinking, hmm, I've not done much there. I might need to get more points. My reflection on it is whenever I was doing my C3 application, went to the oral website, I hadn't hit a lot of those domains and I still got the job that I wanted. So I want to stress that to the listeners that this isn't the be all and end all. But obviously there are things that you can do during your time that can improve your experience. It's not just about getting the points, it's about your experiences as a doc and improving your well-roundedness. What are your take-home messages, Johnny? I would say that's important. So it goes back to what I said earlier is that there's a way to game this or be clever about this, but whether you should be doing that is a different question. And whether that's good in the long run for our specialty is an interesting question. And that's why I tell the early career medical students, just go to the pub, enjoy yourself because the more important things in life. I would say don't stress if you think you've not hit all these points. First of all, not every specialty is as competitive as others. That's totally fine. And it varies from year to year. You get competition ratios on the website, can't you? Yes. Data for previous years are all on the JRCTB website. And the other thing to say is that, like I said, they divide it all up before you go into the interview. The interview is where everything matters. That's where they get you. So I know people, like I said, who haven't got a huge amount have gone in and got full marks in the interview and got first choice of where they wanted to go in the country for dermatology, which is an incredible achievement. So do not stress. You do not need to be in all singing, all dancing, firing all cylinders, academic or you know qualified renal physician before you even apply. You just need to show enthusiasm and come across well on in an interview. On that note, I think we should wrap it up. And I'd like to say once again, Johnny, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I hope the listeners find this useful because I think it's really important to talk about. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. I wouldn't worry if this is a bit overwhelming for you, especially if you're early career. We'll have a whole series coming out in this, which will break down all of the different aspects we've touched on. And there's loads of interesting conversation starters and that will hopefully encourage you and make you enthusiastic going forward. Once again, Johnny, thanks very much.